This is Chapter Fifty Two of Following the Equator. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Following the Equator by Mark Twain. Chapter Fifty Two: A Curious Way to Secure Salvation. The Banks of the Ganges. Architecture represents piety. A trip on the river. Bathers and their costumes. Drinking the water. A scientific test of the nasty purifier. Hindu faith in the Ganges. A cremation. Remembrances of the Sati, all life sacred except human life, the goddess Bowani and the sacrificers, sacred monkeys, ugly idols everywhere, two white minarets, a great view with a monkey in it, a picture on the water. Wrinkles should merely indicate where smiles have been. Puddenhead Wilson's new calendar. In one of those Benares temples, we saw a devotee working for salvation in a curious way. He had a huge wad of clay beside him, and was making it up into little wee gods no bigger than carpet-tacks. He stuck a grain of rice into each, to represent the lingam, I think. He turned them out nimbly, for he had had long practice, and had acquired great facility. Every day he made two thousand gods, then threw them into the holy Ganges. This act of homage brought him the profound homage of the pious, also their coppers. He had a sure living here, and was earning a high place in the hereafter. The Ganges front is the supreme show-place of Benares. Its tall bluffs are solidly caked from water to summit along a stretch of three miles, with a splendid jumble of massive and picturesque masonry, a bewildering and beautiful confusion of stone platforms, temples, stair-flights, rich and stately palaces, nowhere a break, nowhere a glimpse of the bluff itself. All the long face of it is completely walled from sight by this crammed perspective of platforms, soaring stairways, sculptured temples, majestic palaces, softening away into the distances. And there is movement, motion, human life everywhere, and brilliantly costumed, streaming in rainbows up and down the lofty stairways, and massed in metaphorical flower-gardens on the miles of great platforms at the river's edge. All this masonry, all this architecture, represents piety. The palaces were built by native princes whose homes, as a rule, are far from Benares, but who go there from time to time to refresh their souls with the sight and touch of the Ganges, the river of their idolatry. The stairways are records of acts of piety, the crowd of costly little temples are tokens of money spent by rich men for present credit and hope of future reward. Apparently the rich Christian who spends large sums upon his religion is conspicuous with us by his rarity, but the rich Hindu who doesn't spend large sums upon his religion is seemingly non-existent. With us the poor spend money on their religion but they keep back some to live on. Apparently in India the poor bankrupt themselves daily for their religion. The rich Hindu can afford his pious outlays. He gets much glory for his spendings, yet keeps back a sufficiency of his income for temporal purposes. But the poor Hindu is entitled to compassion, for his spendings keep him poor, yet get him no glory. We made the usual trip up and down the river, seated in chairs under an awning on the deck of the usual commodious hand-propelled ark, made it two or three times, and could have made it with increasing interest and enjoyment many times more, for, of course, the palaces and temples would grow more and more beautiful every time one saw them, for that happens with all such things. 
Also, I think one would not get tired of the bathers, nor their costumes, nor of their ingenuities in getting out of them and into them again without exposing too much bronze, nor of their devotional gesticulations and absorbed bead-tellings. But I should get tired of seeing them wash their mouths with that dreadful water and drink it. In fact, I did get tired of it, and very early, too. At one place where we halted for a while, the foul gush from a sewer was making the water turbid and murky all around, and there was a random corpse slopping around in it that had floated down from up-country. Ten steps below that place stood a crowd of men, women, and comely young maidens waist-deep in the water, and they were scooping it up in their hands and drinking it. Faith can certainly do wonders, and this is an instance of it. Those people were not drinking that fearful stuff to swage thirst, but in order to purify their souls and the interior of their bodies. According to their creed, the Ganges water makes everything pure that it touches, instantly and utterly pure. The sewer water was not an offense to them. The corpse did not revolt them. The sacred water had touched both, and both were now snow-pure, and could defile no one. The memory of that sight will always stay by me, but not by request. A word further concerning the nasty but all-purifying Ganges water. When we went to Agra, by and by, we happened there just in time to be in at the birth of a marvel, a memorable scientific discovery, the discovery that in certain ways the foul and derided Ganges water is the most puissant purifier in the world. This curious fact, as I have said, had just been added to the treasury of modern science. It had long been noted as a strange thing that while Benares is often afflicted with the cholera, she does not spread it beyond her borders. This could not be accounted for. Mr. Henkin, the scientist in the employ of the government of Accra, concluded to examine the water. He went to Benares and made his tests. He got water at the mouths of the sewers where they empty into the river at the bathing ghats. A cubic centimeter of it contained millions of germs. At the end of six hours, they were all dead. He caught a floating corpse, towed it to the shore, and from beside it he dipped up water that was swarming with cholera germs. At the end of six hours, they were all dead. He added swarm after swarm of cholera germs to this water. Within the six hours they always died, to the last sample. Repeatedly he took pure well-water, which was barren of animal life, and put into it a few cholera germs. They always began to propagate at once, and always within six hours they swarmed, and were numberable by millions upon millions. For ages and ages the Hindus have had absolute faith that the water of the Ganges was absolutely pure, could not be defiled by any contact whatsoever, and infallibly made pure and clean whatsoever thing touched it. They still believe it, and that is why they bathe in it and drink it caring nothing for its seeming filthiness and the floating corpses. The Hindus have been laughed at these many generations, but the laughter will need to modify itself a little from now on. How did they find out the water's secret in those ancient ages? Had they germ scientists then? We do not know. We only know that they had a civilization long before we emerged from savagery. But to return to where I was before, I was about to speak of the burning gut. They do not burn fakirs, those revered mendicants. They are so holy that they can get to their place without that sacrament, provided they be consigned to the consecrating river. 
we saw one carried to midstream and thrown overboard. He was sandwiched between two great slabs of stone. We lay off the cremation gut half an hour and saw nine corpses burned. I should not wish to see any more of it, unless I might select the parties. The mourners follow the bier through the town and down to the ghat, then the beer-bearers deliver the body to some low-caste natives, doms, and the mourners turn about and go back home. I heard no crying and saw no tears. There was no ceremony of parting. Apparently these expressions of grief and affection are reserved for the privacy of the home. The dead women came draped in red, the men in white. They are laid in the water at the river's edge while the pier is being prepared. The first subject was a man. When the doms unswathed him to wash him, he proved to be a sturdily built, well-nourished and handsome old gentleman, with not a sign about him to suggest that he had ever been ill. Dry wood was brought and built up into a loose pile. The corpse was laid upon it and covered over with fuel. Then a naked holy man who was sitting on high ground a little distance away began to talk and shout with great energy, and he kept up this noise right along. It may have been the funeral sermon, and probably was. I forgot to say that one of the mourners remained behind when the others went away. This was the dead man's son, a boy of ten or twelve, brown and handsome, grave and self-possessed, and clothed in flowing white. He was there to burn his father. He was given a torch, and while he slowly walked seven times around the pier, the naked black man on the high ground poured out his sermon more clamorously than ever. The seventh circuit completed, the boy applied the torch at his father's head, then at his feet. The flames sprang briskly up with a sharp crackling noise, and the lad went away. Hindus do not want daughters, because their weddings make such a ruinous expense, but they want sons so that at death they may have honorable exit from the world, and there is no honor equal to the honor of having one's peer lighted by one's son. The father who dies sonless is in a grievous situation indeed, and is pitied. Life being uncertain, the Hindu marries while he is still a boy, in the hope that he will have a son ready when the day of his need shall come. But if he have no son, he will adopt one. This answers every purpose." Meantime the corpse is burning, also several others. It is a dismal business. The stokers did not sit down in idleness, but moved briskly about, punching up the fires with long poles, and now and then adding fuel. Sometimes they hoisted the half of a skeleton into the air, then slammed it down and beat it with the pole, breaking it up so that it would burn better. They hoisted skulls up in the same way and banged and battered them. The sight was hard to bear. It would have been harder if the mourners had stayed to witness it. I had but a moderate desire to see a cremation, so it was soon satisfied. For sanitary reasons it would be well if cremation were universal, but this form is revolting, and not to be recommended. The fire used is sacred, of course, for there is money in it. Ordinary fire is forbidden, there is no money in it. I was told that this sacred fire is all furnished by one person, and that he has a monopoly of it and charges a good price for it. Sometimes a rich mourner pays a thousand rupees for it. To get to paradise from India is an expensive thing. Every detail connected with the matter costs something, and helps to fatten a priest. I suppose it is quite safe to conclude that that fire-bug is in holy orders. 
close to the cremation ground stand a few time-worn stones which are remembrances of the suttee each has a rough carving upon it representing a man and a woman standing or walking hand in hand and marks the spot where a widow went to her death by fire in the days when the suttee flourished mr parker said that widows would burn themselves now if the government would allow it the family that can point to one of these little memorials and say she who burned herself there was an ancestress of ours is envied it is a curious people with them all life seems to be sacred except human life even the life of vermin is sacred and must not be taken the good jain wipes off a seat before using it lest he cause the death of some valueless insect by sitting down on it it grieves him to have to drink water because the provisions in his stomach may not agree with the microbes yet india invented thuggery and the suttee india is a hard country to understand we went to the temple of the thug goddess boani or kali or durga she has these names and others she is the only god to whom living sacrifices are made goats are sacrificed to her monkeys would be cheaper there are plenty of them about the place being sacred they make themselves very free and scramble around wherever they please the temple and its porch are beautifully carved but this is not the case with the idol Bowani is not pleasant to look at she has a silver face and a projecting swollen tongue painted a deep red she wears a necklace of skulls in fact none of the idols in benares are handsome or attractive and what a swarm of them there is the town is a vast museum of idols and all of them crude misshapen and ugly they flock through one's dreams at night a wild mob of nightmares when you get tired of them in the temples and take a trip on the river you find idle giants flashily painted stretched out side by side on the shore and apparently wherever there is room for one more lingam a lingam is there if vishnu had foreseen what his town was going to be he would have called it idleville or lingamburg the most conspicuous feature of benares is the pair of slender white minarets which tower like masts from the great mosque of aurangzeb they seem to be always in sight from everywhere those airy graceful inspiring things but masts is not the right word for masts have a perceptible taper while these minarets have not they are one hundred and forty two feet high and only eight and a half feet in diameter at the base and seven and a half at the summit scarcely any taper at all these are the proportions of a candle and fair and fairy-like candles these are will be anyway some day when the christians inherit them and top them with the electric light there is a great view from up there a wonderful view a large gray monkey was part of it and damaged it a monkey has no judgment this one was skipping about the upper great heights of the mosque skipping across empty yawning intervals which were almost too wide for him and which he only just barely cleared each time by the skin of his teeth he got me so nervous that i couldn't look at the view i couldn't look at anything but him every time he went sailing over one of those abysses my breath stood still and when he grabbed for the perch he was going for i grabbed too in sympathy and he was perfectly indifferent perfectly unconcerned and i did all the panting myself he came within an ace of losing his life a dozen times and i was so troubled about him 
that I would have shot him if I had had anything to do with it. But I strongly recommend the view. There is more monkey than view, and there is always going to be more monkey while that idiot survives. But what view you get is superb. All Benares, the river, and the region round about are spread before you. Take a gun and look at the view. The next thing I saw was more reposeful. It was a new kind of art. It was a picture painted on water. It was done by a native. He sprinkled fine dust of various colors on the still surface of a basin of water, and out of these sprinklings a dainty and pretty picture gradually grew, a picture which a breath could destroy. Somehow it was impressive, after so much browsing among massive and battered and decaying fanes that rest upon ruins, and those ruins upon still other ruins, and those upon still others again. It was a sermon, an allegory, a symbol of instability. Those creations in stone were only a kind of water pictures, after all. A prominent episode in the Indian career of Warren Hastings had Benares for its theatre, Wherever that extraordinary man set his foot, he left his mark. He came to Benares in 1781 to collect a fine of 500,000 pounds, which he had levied upon its Raja, Chait Singh, on behalf of the East India Company. Hastings was a long way from home and help. There were, probably, not a dozen Englishmen within reach. The Raja was in his fort, with his myriads around him. But no matter— from his little camp in a neighboring garden, Hastings sent a party to arrest the sovereign. He sent on this daring mission a couple of hundred native soldiers, sepoys, under command of three young English lieutenants. The Rajah submitted without a word. The incident lights up the Indian situation electrically, and gives one a vivid sense of the strides which the English had made, and the mastership they had acquired, in the land since the date of Clive's great victory. In a quarter of a century, from being nobodies, and feared by none, they were become confessed lords and masters, feared by all, sovereigns included, and served by all, sovereigns included. It makes the fairy tales sound true. The English had not been afraid to enlist native soldiers to fight against their own people and keep them obedient. And now Hastings was not afraid to come away out to this remote place with a handful of such soldiers, and send them to arrest a native sovereign. The lieutenants imprisoned the Rajah in his own fort. It was beautiful, the pluckiness of it, the impudence of it. The arrest enraged the Rajah's people, and all Benares came storming about the place and threatening vengeance. And yet, but for an accident, nothing important would have resulted, perhaps. The mob found out a most strange thing, an almost incredible thing, that this handful of soldiers had come on this hardy errand with empty guns and no ammunition. This has been attributed to thoughtlessness, but it could hardly have been that, for in such large emergencies as this, intelligent people do think. It must have been indifference, an overconfidence born of the proved submissiveness of the native character when confronted by even one or two stern Britons in their war-paint. But however that may be, it was a fatal discovery that the mob had made. They were full of courage now, and they broke into the fort and massacred the helpless soldiers and their officers. Hastings escaped from Benares by night and got safely away, leaving the principality in a state of wild insurrection. But he was back again within the month, and quieted it down in his prompt and virile way, and took the Rajah's throne away from him, 
and gave it to another man. He was a capable kind of person, was Warren Hastings. This was the only time he was ever out of ammunition. Some of his acts have left stains upon his name which can never be washed away, but he saved to England the Indian Empire, and that was the best service that was ever done to the Indians themselves, those wretched heirs of a hundred centuries of pitiless oppression and abuse. End of chapter 52